John Owen uh, was born in England in 1616, the same year that Shakespeare died, and four years before the Pilgrims set sail for New England. Owen is one of the most famous of the Puritan pastors. Puritans were a reform movement in the Church of England in the uh, 17th, 18th centuries, uh, attempting to reform the worship of the Church of England and the theology of that church. Uh, Owen is a very important thinker, and he's most famous for two books. You may have heard of at least one of them. His most famous title is On the Atonement on the Cross, entitled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, which has to be one of the best titles ever written for a book. His other famous book is one that concerns us today. It's entitled Of Mortification of Sin in the Life of a Believer. That's a word that we don't use very often these days, is it? Mortification. And it's a topic that's rarely spoken of. I mean, how many sermons have you ever heard preached on the mortification of sin? Uh, On a uh, a gray, kind of dreary Sunday, I feel almost a a little guilty preaching (laughs) on the topic. But but the purpose of which is to lead us, you know, out of our bondage and into the freedom of being the sons and daughters of God that, that he has made for us to be. Of the mortification of sin in the life of a believer, Owens takes as his primary text the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 13 where it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the power of the Spirit you put to death, that is mortify, the deeds of the flesh, you will live. We have that again here in our passage in verse 5. How Paul speaks of you must put to death whatever belongs to your earthly sinful nature. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. I mean, if I could use the illustration, and it's a flawed illustration, but if you think of an airplane, you know, the main part of an airplane is a fuselage. There you have the cockpit, and you have the cabin, and the baggage stowage. Without a fuselage, you you don't have an airplane, right? And, And kind of the central part of all of the Christian life is our union with Christ and our identity, living out of our identity in Christ. Last week, that's what the whole sermon was about. That's the fuel slodge. That's the main part. Everything I say today is based upon that being the main thing. So if you, you know, by chance didn't hear the sermon last week, um, everything I say is predicated on that. But in order to have an airplane, you got to have a couple of wings, And the wings that Paul lays out for us right here are one wing is called the mortification of sin. And the next week, what we'll look at is the second wing. The theologians like Owen would call it vivification or or putting on new life. So there's this deathing that we do and there's a lifing that we do. And all of that is really essential to us living a fully Christian uh, life and experience. So let's look at Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Actually, before we do so, let's pray again. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, we want to tell you just how much we treasure your word. Your word is, is a priceless riches to us. It is, it, it is gold and it's jewels and it's 
so fantastically wonderful to us. We thank you for it. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to hear what you have to say to us from it today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and God's people said, amen. I'll comment on the passage as we go along. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The Greek word there for sexual immorality is porneia. It's kind of a catch-all term that's used in the Bible to describe all sorts of sexual sin. So sex outside of marriage, pornography, bestiality, homosexual sex, all of these would be recognized by a Jew in the first century as being transgressions of the, second, or the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. Put that to death, he says. Impurity, uh, again, this is a catch-all term. I think it's used here to describe actions or thoughts that are gross or abnormal Actions or thoughts that leave us feeling kind of dirty and yucky afterwards, you're to put that to death. Lust uh, can refer to sexual urges for someone other than your spouse, or it can also be used as a catch all term in the Bible to describe inordinate desires, even desires for good things that are disproportionate and, and tend to rule and consume us. Those lusts, he says, are put to be put to death. Evil desires. And then the last one he has here, greed. And some of your Bibles translate this as covetousness. Uh, simply put, this is wanting what is not yours. You know, I wish I had their job. I wish I had their body. I wish I got to do X, Y, and Z. I wish I, wish I got to do that. And pretty much all of the marketing on the internet and on the, on the television is meant to stir up inside of us our covetousness. So we're constantly being tempted by it. And he, he, Paul says that our greed is actually a form of idolatry. In verse 6, it is because of these the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7. Almost all of the people who would have heard Colossians read for the very first time were folk who had become Christians as, a, as adults. Uh, they had an unbelieving past, and it was very easy for them to remember what their life was like in paganism. So what Paul is describing here in verse 7 is, is a little bit different than, say, the life of a child who grows up in the church, who is baptized who, who could honestly say that there's never been a day in my life I didn't know Jesus as Savior. Like their past is remarkably different than the past that's described right here. Verse 7, he says, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves, and so the sinless, the viceless continues, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, those are all three uh, anger words. You get the sense that perhaps anger is a problem in the Christian life. Anger, rage, malice, slander, that is speaking falsely of someone, and filthy language from your lips. You are to rid yourselves also of all such things as these. And then verse 9, 
Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. We'll talk about this image uh, more in just a minute, but Paul loves this. Okay, I guess I will say this right now. The Bible rarely gives us a 10 steps or 10 practical, here's how you do it. Uh, That's why we get Christian authors who will write the practical books for us and tell us, you know, here are the 10 steps to mortifying your sin. You know, Jesus doesn't ever really give you that. And Paul doesn't give you that. Instead, the Bible is constantly talking to you in the form of metaphors. And the idea is you have the responsibility to kind of take and live in that metaphor and then figure out how to put it into practice in your life. So this metaphor is of, um, of clothes or armor, how you, you had your old clothes, that old armor was stripped off of you. Those are your grave clothes. Those are gross and, and sick and those are all gone. Those were all put to death on the cross. And now you are to step over here and you're to put on new clothes and new armor. Those are the metaphors that we're working with here. This principally happened to you, incidentally, at the moment of your, of your faith and of your baptism. It's significant that you are, you're washed in your baptism. You're given a new name in your baptism. And metaphorically, there's a sense that you, are, you head out in new clothes after your baptism. So certainly that would have been in the background as they were thinking about it. Uh, So verse 11, then we conclude here. He's talking about the church. He says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. Scythians were originally people from the region of the Black Sea, and they were kind of considered the bottom of the barrel barbarians, (laughs) the lowest of the low barbarians. And he says, None of those, even slave or free, none of those matter anymore. All that matters in the body of Christ is Christ is all and Christ is in all. Amen? Amen. So we've been working through Paul's letter to the Colossians over the last two months. Uh, if you, again, if you're, you're new to the sermon series, Paul is writing out of prison to a church that he didn't plant. In fact, he's probably met very few, if any, of these Christians before. He's writing to a small city and a fairly insignificant city in east-central Turkey. And last week I preached, as I said, a sermon focused on our identity in Christ and how who we most truly are is found in our union with Jesus Christ. Um, And I already used the fuselage illustration, so skipping ahead in the sermon notes. um, I want to look at what Paul has to say about mortification and also draw upon some of John Owen's insights. Um, Owen, if you've ever read him, his writing is so dense. It is pretty hard to follow. It's, they're classics, but they take a lot of mental energy. There's one line, though, from Of the Mortification of Sin that it's famous. And maybe, does anybody know what it is? Probably not. It's simply this. He said, Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And all of his book is an 
exposition of that. Be killing sin. Fight it. Freeze it. Starve it. Shoot it. Strike it. Hate it. Kill it. Very few of us take this approach towards sin, do we, in general? I mean, I think most of us don't even have that as a category that we are working in. You hear Christians will talk about spiritual warfare, but spiritual warfare is usually, in, in our language, almost entirely about battle that we do between the demons and the devil. Rarely do you hear us talking about spiritual warfare against the enemy inside our gates. <laughs> and he's the most deadly en- enemy of them all. Um, this enemy is variously described by the Apostle Paul as the old man or the old self, as the flesh or as the sinful nature, as humanity living as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, rather than humanity being renewed in the true image of its creator. Uh, the Puritans... Uh, what would I say about them? The Puritans love to do deep soul work in their writings and kind of keep getting down to what's really at the bottom of our hearts. Um, and that's, a, uh, that's a, such a broad generalization. I don't even know that's very helpful. What Owens does in his book is he wants to impress upon the reader, first and foremost, the danger, just the sheer danger of sin. The, the guilt and the danger of sin. And uh, I'll use this illustration. Maybe you guys saw in the movie theaters a couple years ago, the Martin Scorsese film based upon the fabulous story written by Shuzako Endo, Silence. How many of us saw Silence or have read Shuzako Endo? One of my favorite pieces of fiction ever. I think I've t- told you that before. It's the story of a 17th century Portuguese priest who travels to Japan to find out if his spiritual father, another priest, has committed apostasy and left the Christian faith. And what it does is it discovers these Japanese Christians who are being fiercely persecuted by the Japanese, who are just trying to eradicate and squash out Christianity from 17th century Japan. And the most haunting memory that I have of the book and of the movie is how they would torture these Christians. First off, they would dig a hole, a slender pit, and they would fill the the pit with feces. Then they would bind the Christian up, tie them with their hands behind their back, and put a rope around their feet. And then they would string them up and, and hang them upside down, and then drop them headfirst into the pit. Well, if you leave somebody you know, turned upside down for any length of time, what's going to happen? They're going to die because all of the blood rushes to their heads. So what they did is the, is the dastardly genius of their torture is they made little incisions behind the back of their ears so that they would just slowly bleed out of their head uh, and very slowly, very slowly, just drip by drip by drip, they would die. 
what effect does unmortified sin have on us? And, and by that, I mean not only my own unmortified sin, but the unmortified sins of other people being inflicted on me. Because it really, it can be both. And Owen says, here's what happens. Every mortified sin will do two things to you. It will weaken your soul and deprive it of its vigor. And it will darken your soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. Which is kind of a nice way of saying what I just pictured for you with endo, right? It will weaken your soul. It's just that drip, 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 drip. And it will, and you will be shrouded in darkness. He goes on. It is like a, sin is like a, a thick cloud that spreads over the face of the soul. And that cloud intercepts the beams of God's love and favor, robbing you of your sense of your privilege, of your adoption into God's family. Uh, And if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them. So go back to that endo image for just a minute. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that way? Feel like I'm just bleeding to death and I am so dead inside and I've got absolutely nothing left inside of me. Um, Yeah, maybe you're clinically depressed, but it's very likely that either that's your own unmortified sin that has been bleeding you dry or that's somebody else's whom you has not been confronted and you're letting them to continue to do that over and over again. So he says, get in mind the, the guilt of the danger of your sin. He says, hey, when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to sex outside the bounds that God has given us, don't mess around with that because someone is going to die. When it comes to your anger, you should be deadly serious about putting that to death. That thing is not your friend. That thing is not your personality. That thing is your enemy that is trying to kill you or to kill the people around you. So I gave you the the one image of Endo. Let me give you another image, a chilling image of the effect of unmortified sin. I think, how many of us did driver's ed and we had to watch all of those crash videos There were, you know, you had the drunk driver and they were bloody and gory. And the whole purpose of those videos was to what? Scare us to death. Well, I believe that Judas is the Bible's version of those videos. Judas is in the Bible to scare the hell out of us. And one of the most chilling stories about Judas is found in the Gospel of John chapter 12. So here's, here's what's going on. Uh, just a few days earlier, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And now Jesus and his disciples have come into the house of Lazarus. And they're sitting down and they're sharing a meal with Lazarus and the rest of his extended family. You know, think about that. Sitting across from you at the dinner table is a guy who was certifiably dead 48 hours ago. What a strange meal that would be. And now he's perfectly normal. He's alive and well. And these disciples who are sitting and having the meal, they saw all of it happen, including Judas. 
Well, if you remember what occurs next in the narrative, Mary takes some very expensive ointment uh, and she pours it over Jesus' feet and she wipes it with her hair. And this was Mary's lavish way of simply expressing her uh, generosity, her, her gratitude to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. This is my gratitude and this is my love for you. Uh, we look and we see how much that ointment cost. It was probably $60,000. It was probably a family heirloom. It was probably the, the, the most valuable thing that she had in her earthly possessions. She pours it out on Jesus' feet appropriately because Jesus has just raised her her brother from the dead. But then we read in verse 5 what Judas says. He says, "Well, well, why wasn't this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John then adds this comment. He says, Judas said this not because he truly cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas, why are you upset in this situation? Well, it's because I'm thinking about the poor. Uh, this is a lot of money that could be used to, to generously bless the poor. Judas, do you care about the poor? Are you a generous man towards the poor? Absolutely. That's the whole reason I'm troubled right now. Like, I have no doubt that if Judas is looking at the man in the mirror, the man who's looking back at him is a generous, kind-hearted, you know, loving the poor kind of guy. When in reality, the man who's looking at him in the mirror is a greedy, covetous, man who is not mortified that greed and covetousness all his life. And it's so deadly that what happens just a week later, his love for money ends up leading to the betrayal of the man who just raised somebody from the dead, and he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And then he goes out and he hangs himself on a branch. He commits suicide he fought, the branch breaks, his body plunges, and it, the Bible says all of his intestines burst out onto the ground. I mean, it's, it's gross, right? But it's, it's all a picture, isn't it, of just how dangerous sin is. Think about it this way. The next time you're at a funeral, I want you to imagine, just do this. I want you to imagine the body in that casket in front of you. All of a sudden, they just sit up. <laughs> And they walk out of the room, and you end up having dinner with them 48 hours later. That's exactly what Judas saw. And yet, sin had done such a number on him that he could not, he could not even see himself. And he could not even honor Jesus. He actually tried to, I mean, he betrayed Jesus. I think you see where I'm going. With it. But all of it was done in such a, a pious and self-deceiving way. And I think that is probably the number one thing I would say as a pastor that I have seen is uh, that's the number one effect that sin has on us is it just blinds the tar out of us. We cannot see, we cannot see ourselves. Sinclair Ferguson has written quite a bit. Uh, he's a Scottish theologian. He's written quite a bit about John Owens and on the mortification of sin. He gives us a, a good definition of mortification I want to pass along. 
Mortification, according to Ferguson, is the constant battle against sin, which we fight daily. It is the refusal to allow the eye to wander, the mind to contemplate, the affections to run after anything which will draw us away from Christ. Mortification is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment because we become conscious of of its existence. And then finally, it is the consistent endeavor to do all in our power to weaken the grip with which sin has on us in general and its manifestation in our own lives in particular. Um, that's a long definition, and, but I think you kind of get the point. Practical ideas. Why, why do we struggle to mortify our own sin? Um, beyond the fact that maybe it's not even a category we are aware of or utilizing, here are a couple of uh, practical answers I would give to that question. Um, number one, do you know what every one of us need in our lives? We need a King Solomon. Like, we need one, at least one person who is a truly wise individual, who's like 10 steps ahead of us in the Christian life, who's super wise and skillful, who can help me get to the, to the deeper issues that are underneath my sin. You know, why am I prone to lie in these situations? Because it's, it's, not, it's not the truth or falsehood. There's something underneath why am I triggered so easily with my anger? There are always underlying issues. It's not just enough to say, don't do that, don't lie, don't lust, don't do this, don't break this. It's not enough. You have to go underneath and say, why am I doing this to begin with? And King Solomon is probably the kind of guy who could help you or gal, Queen Solomonette, <laughs> who could help you do so. And one of the reasons we don't mortify sin is because we don't surround ourselves with wise men and women of true discernment. Uh, by that, I mean wise, godly, mature friends. And, then, and part of the sad truth, too, is that we don't, some of us don't even have a true friend. Like we, we don't even have a friend. Um, and then those who we do have, we're not fully transparent with them. They, we don't disclose ourselves fully to them. Here's one of the one thing you could do if you wished. It, it, it means being very vulnerable, but one of the most helpful things you can say is to go to your closest friend and you say to them, I, I want to become a better man, a better woman, the person whom God has saved me to be in Christ. Uh, I want to be the fullest person Jesus has meant for me to be. What do you see in my life that needs to be mortified? What do you see? Because I know that the man who's looking back at me in the mirror is probably lying to me. So what do you see? Um, Last week I spoke at length about the wounds that we carry from our past. And I described these as father wounds, mother wounds, spouse wounds, sexual wounds. I said that it's these wounds that often serve as the soil from which our idols grow and our false identities flourish. Um, one of the reasons we fail to mortify our sins is because we have not taken the gospel. And if you think of the gospel as, as a medicine, a medicinal ointment, the gospel has not gone to those places and healed them. 
Um, it, 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 it has not soothed us. It has not comforted us. It has not brought us peace. It is not... So if, if you're a person who's going to try to kill your sin, um, who are you? Are you an orphan who has leukemia lying in the ER with stab wounds and a respirator over your mouth? Is that your identity and your condition? As one unloved, alone, sick, and traumatized? you're probably then not going to have the strength or the energy to pick up a 30-pound sword and begin to swing. See, your identity, how you know yourself to be in Christ, is, it leads to your ability to mortify. If you are a warrior prince or princess who's a beloved child of the Father, uh, then uh, you can do some damage. But Mortification flows out of your identity and out of the healing that you experience from the gospel. Another reason why I think that we struggle to mortify our sins is we have tried and we have failed. And it's those past repeated failures that take the wind out of our sails and lead us into hopelessness and say, it's not going to get any better. That's how we view ourselves sometimes. That's how we view our marriages sometimes. It is not going to get any better, is what we say. It's kind of like um, if you've ever watched on ESPN the World's Strongest Man competition. The signature event of the World's Strongest Man competition are the Atlas Balls. Those giant stone balls, which there are five of them, They increase in weight from 220 pounds to 350 pounds. And the strong man has to pick that up and he has to carry it. And he has to set it on uh, pillars that are in, you know, successive and and successive distances. One of the reasons we, we stop trying to mortify sin is we tried to pick up that ball before and we dropped it on our toe. (laughs) We tried to carry that ball. But we were like Atlas who's walking up an incline and it fell off our shoulder and it rolled all the way back down here and I can't do it anymore. I can't do this marriage anymore, we say. And so it's hopelessness from past failures that lead to inertia, that lead to fatigue, that lead us to stay exactly where we are. The number one factor, I would say, in mortifying our sin, it goes back to the Judas story. We have to see what really is the problem inside of us. You can't kill what you're not aware of. And the fact is, there's only a few people who live with you all the time. Usually those people are your spouse and your kids or your friends. And if your spouse tells you something about yourself, and you just dismiss what they say, <laughs> they can't be right when she can't be right when she tells me that I am really not a loving husband if you dismiss that. He can't be right when he tells me that he's constantly being belittled and criticized. If you dismiss the words of the people who know you and see you and spend the most time with you, then how are you going to kill it? That's been my experience so often is just people turn a blind ear to what it is the people who know them best are trying to point out in their lives. So then, turning back to the Apostle Paul, Paul doesn't give us 
detailed line-by-line commands of how to kill our sin. But I think that he, he would explain to us, here are a few things that you can do. He would say, here's what already happened for you. Your old self, the old you, it died on the cross with Jesus. God put that man to death. And now because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of Easter Sunday, the new you has arisen. There are new clothes to be worn. These are not grave clothes. You cannot go back to your grave clothes. You cannot put those on any longer. You are a new creation in Christ, a beloved son and daughter of the Father, endowed with the Spirit of God. And those are the clothes that you must put on. Uh, Paul would definitely direct us to again and again going back to our identity, who we are in Christ, uh, and living out of that identity. We all, we all know somebody, I'll give this example. We all know somebody who's a really bright guy. She's a really bright girl. She's smart, but she feels like she's stupid. Maybe that somebody is you. Everybody around you says, you're pretty sharp, sharp cookie, but you feel stupid. Or, the, or a girl who, she's really a, an attractive girl, but she feels ugly. Or a person who is very helpful and, and brings life to a community, but when they walk into a room, they feel like they're just a drain. They feel like when they walk into a room, all the air goes out of a balloon. The point being, just because you are something doesn't mean that you live in that something. And that's what's happening to us all the time. Just because my old man died and my new man is alive doesn't mean that I'm living out of it. We have to rehearse the truth of our union with Christ again and again. We have to remember that we are united to Christ. We have to renew our minds. And we have to prayerfully um, put on the, the fruits of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in verses 12 through 17. Next, next week. But always remember that you are Easter. You are Easter. You are a new creation. God has already put your old self to death. And there are new clothes for you to put on. Let me conclude. Oh man, this has been a long sermon. I'm sorry. Looking at this, the, the time. Um, let me conclude with a story from the great divorce. My favorite picture of mortification you know, one of the characters in, the, in C.S. Lewis's great divorce is a ghost from hell who comes to the outskirts of heaven and is looking longingly toward heaven. Uh, and an angel comes to meet this ghost, and he notices that the ghost has this little red lizard on his shoulder. You know where I'm going with this? A little red lizard. And the lizard doesn't want to go into heaven. And so the ghost turns around, very sad and forlorn, ready to leave, and the angel calls and says, hey, why are you leaving so early? And the ghost says, well, this little fellow here, he doesn't really want me to go in that direction, so I can't. The angel says, would you like me to make it quiet? The ghost says, well, that would be a relief. Then I will kill him, said the angel. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't say anything about killing it. It's the only way. It's the only way. May I kill it? Well, um, let's discuss this for a minute. There is no time. May I kill it? Oh, look, it's gone to sleep. It's not talking anymore. I'm sure it won't be any trouble anymore. 
Yes, it will. May I kill it? Well, I think the gradual process is always a better way of doing these things. No, the gradual process is of no use at all. May I kill it? Uh, Get back. You're hurting me. You didn't tell me it would hurt me. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. May I kill it? Look, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and then I'll come to you the first moment I can. And the the angel's response is so beautiful. This moment contains all moments. May I kill it? Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud, everyone could hear what it was saying. He can do it. He can kill me. And then what would you do without me? I admit that I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll be very good, lizard. May I kill it? Oh, dude, just do. Get it over with. God help me. God help me, cries the ghost. Then the angel grabs hold of the lizard, breaks its neck, and throws it down. The ghost screams, and at that moment, two amazing things happen. First of all, the ghost stops being a ghost and becomes a radiant and gorgeous and bright and real human being, a man. And the second thing that happens, the body of the red lizard, instead of disappearing, grows into a beautiful, white, powerful stallion that transports the man to the mountain of God. I love Why is the red lizard transformed into a white stallion? It's because when sin has been killed, it's like you've been free to ride. It's like you have been, when sin has been killed, it's like you get to jump on the back of a pegasus. And you go whoosh. In conclusion, I want you to experience this in two respects. I want you, whatever your, whatever That lizard is, and some of us have a lizard colony, so just pick one. Whatever that, whatever is the name of your lizard, I want you to kill it. I want you to kill it and take off. And secondly, I want you to be an angel that helps somebody else kill it. Like, I want you to, it's one of the coolest parts about being a pastor, to see somebody finally take off and to be part of that That should be every one of our aspirations to have that kind of relationship with another Christian so that we help them, we get to experience the joy of watching a dear friend fly as they were meant to do. And I'll just stop right there. Amen.